Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us for this special episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and today we'll be diverging from our customary post-sermon discussion as we invest the coming minutes rather in a discussion related to the recent watershed United States Supreme Court ruling, Dobbs versus Missouri Women's Health Organization, a ruling that declared that the Constitution of the United States of America does not guarantee a citizen's right to abort an unborn child. And with me today to discuss these important matters are Tim Cockrell and Chris Miller. I'm privileged to serve with both men as elders here at our local church, Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Well, Chris, Tim, really appreciate your flexibility, your quick response, and meeting to talk about this very important issue. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Bart. As an introduction for our listeners, we want to point out that today we will not be sharing our opinions on the legal or political issues surrounding the Dobbs decision. But, of course, we may have to brush up against some of those matters. And we also recognize that throughout our communities, there are many who are celebrating, but there are also many who are hurting as a result of this ruling. And then finally, we want to share that our church here at Grace Baptist Church has, since after the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, taken a decidedly pro-life stance that we stand behind, and even our governing documents state that pro-life position. Our goal today is simply to discuss how the Bible instructs us to respond in these types of situations, and of course to this particular situation. And and so with those ground rules in mind, guys, let's start with our church's stated position concerning the sanctity of life. And let me read part of that statement. It says, and I'm quoting, God is the creator of all life, and from the moment of conception, he recognizes each unique individual. Thus, the purposeful taking of the life of that unborn individual is a sin both against the God who grants life and who has created mankind in his image, and against that unborn person. So, why is that statement in our governing documents? I mean, I think it starts with our view of humanity, that if we are made in God's image, we are made intentionally by God with purpose. My understanding of being made in God's image is that we are created to rightly relate to him and then to rightly represent him in creation, both in ruling and relating to fellow image bearers. And so I think this statement is to help us understand that that being created in God's image is not based on certain circumstances or certain abilities, but rather by God's design. And so in a culture in which life is in many cases devalued, we as Christians want to take a decidedly Christian stance that's rooted in our understanding of being made in God's image. That's exactly right. And on the defensive side of that sort of thing, uh, we all know that um, doctrinal statements uh, adapt over time to the needs of the moment, and that's the appropriate thing to do. And I think that just reflects that uh, the foresight of the people who were doing this in the 70s that this was going to be a long battle and uh, an area of focus we wanted to stand for truth about. Well, certainly the 49-year battle. And I'm, I'm curious, and I'm going to uh, talk to Chris in particular. You're kind of sort of the senior statesman of this group. Mm-hmm. As I thought about it, we've got three decades represented of, of age mm-hmm. in this room right now. You were, by my calculation, you were probably a 
about in high school or ending your high school years yep. Yep. as the do or as the Roe decision, Roe v. Wade, was handed down. Can you share a little perspective as a high school senior, junior, senior, or thereabouts? Do you remember that? Absolutely. Do you remember? And what, what went through your mind then? And can you juxtapose that against what goes through your mind when you heard of the Dobbs decision this past Friday? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a really good question, <clears throat> Bart. I didn't have any sense of, much sense as a high school kid, of the political ramifications. But I certainly didn't understand the personal ones. Uh, because in 1972, when this happened, I was, uh, I think, probably a junior in, in high school. And we had, a, we had a large public school of 3,000 students in Indianapolis. And a couple of the girls in our class got pregnant. And uh, this, the big story was that they went to New York to get abortions because it wasn't legal in Indiana. So that's when I first became aware of this is a state kind of thing. And it depends upon where you are. And the even then, the fact that they had to have abortions was in that society a uh, a very negative thing and a and a, an embarrassing thing, and a, a completely different attitude than we have now. So, in some sense, we've gone <clears throat> back 50 years. In another sense, those 50 years have certainly laid a <clears throat> a poor foundation, or maybe I should say, eroded a foundation. Um, that we'll talk about more later. Well, you talked about uh, people who, who left Indianapolis or Indiana to mm -hmm. go to New York. And today that just that brings up the, the idea throughout our communities, even in our churches, there, there are individuals who are deeply grieved, they're angry, even scared, and we've seen a lot of this on newscasts by this ruling. So for those who would celebrate the ruling, how can they minister effectively to those who are grieved, to those who are scared, who are hurting because of it? I think it begins by listening. It's easy to assume we know why they're hurting or scared or grieved. And we can paint people into a particular picture that is a creation of our own mind. And we stereotype and we uh, categorize them in a particular way. But there are many people that have, have deep concerns about what this means for life after that baby is born. They maybe work in social work and they've seen the ways that children that are unwanted that are born are then in abusive situations or in difficult situations as a part of that family. And so I think just listening is an important first step. And then secondly, just modeling the love of Christ, that we're not going to shame, we're not going to argue, but we're going to speak with grace and truth, that we would present a, a biblical gospel-oriented picture. I think that's true. Uh, when Tim says you should listen, one of the things I've listened to is sometimes I'll read, um, how do I say this gently, a, a fairly liberal newspaper and read opinions and read co viewers' comments to get a sense of what people are thinking. And if I can say it this way, on the other side, the people who are disappointed about the ruling, uh, they'll come back and a lot of the speech has to do <clears throat> with how evangelicals hate women. Mm -hmm. And and I, I think at first that's sort of shocking to us, but that's what we need to hear. This is what they're thinking. So the fact that you would take this supposed right away means, oh, I don't like women. I don't. I, I want to push them away, keep them barefoot and pregnant, and all those kinds of ideas. And I think that's where we also need to start and say, no, that's not our goal here. Our goal is to elevate women and elevate children and elevate life. And so our goal is not to hurt or to hinder. 
And so we'll be there to support and help and teach um, what needs to be taught. I'm going to push back just a little bit, mm -hmm. trying to be the, the devil's advocate type of a situation. In our statement that I read earlier, we call the act of abortion sin. Mm -hmm. Is that inflammatory? Is that a problem when you're trying to minister to other individuals who disagree with that? And how do you do that? Uh, yeah, th I mean, that, that's a delicate way to speak to uh, speak to our culture. And here, here's the bigger problem, I think. Let me just go back a little bit and say uh, about my comment before about the foundations have been eroded. Uh, back in the 70s, when abortion would happen, it was supposed to be safe and legal and rare, right? Uh, but today, the foundations of marriage have been eroded. The foundations of sexual intimacy have been eroded because we, we don't understand... Um, that this is a sacred thing for married couples in God's sight. And so when you put all of those supports around uh, abortion, um, it, it makes it, it, it changes the landscape. Uh, for example, marriage is a sacred uh, institution of God, and children are the fruit of that. Well, if now we just have a law that has to do with the fruit of marriage, children, but you've eroded the foundation of a good marriage and a father's role, and the, the, the role of sex in that, then all of a sudden this issue is standing out by itself and all of a sudden there, there is no, nothing else to support. Why would you make such a extreme ruling like this? So in that case, it's going to sound inflammatory to anyone who is completely against it, but it is true. Um, if in fact murder of a 21-year-old person is sin, then murder of a 21-week-old person is sin as well. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Chris, that if we understand the ethical principles here and we bring them to their logical conclusion. I mean, you think about all the conversations we've had about gender equality and racism. So much of that has been there is not something about one person that innately gives them more rights than another person. Mm -hmm. And yet when it comes to the abortion discussion, suddenly their paradigm shifts because there's there's a personal, I would even say self-interest that's involved there. But my perspective from an ethical discussion on, you know, how do we address sin in a culture in which, you know, even that very word is offensive is very similar to how I would approach the, the transgender discussion and, and homosexuality, that we recognize sin in all of its forms our brokenness that point us to our need to a, for a savior. And so one of the things I think we have to be really careful of as believers is to not somehow categorize their sin as worse than our sin. And it's easy to do because it's so different than what our experience has been. But again, this is where listening comes into play. And just as Chris was describing, understanding not just where they stand on this particular perspective position, but the whole landscape or paradigm that they're operating with of what fears, what shame, what uncertainty are they facing that might lead them to this point? And then ultimately pointing them to the hope of the gospel, not beating them over the head and shaming them further by just pointing a finger and saying, you know, how dare you? And wouldn't you agree that understanding this particular topic and this particular situation and all the ramifications 
is you know the root of it and the key to understanding it is a proper understanding of who god is whereas in our world we start with the self what makes me feel good mm-hmm. carl truman in his recent books books uh, first one is the rise and triumph of the modern self and then his follow-up kind of distilled version mm-hmm. strange new world mm-hmm. he talks about this where we are so focused on what's good for me but the christian who believes that God is God and I am not should be starting with a proper understanding of God and building their concept of is abortion right or wrong Mm -hmm. or is homosexuality or whatever based on God and disciplining themselves to first think that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go into talking about how the scriptures define the role of government. I think it's a, it's a valid uh, discussion here how we define the role or how the scriptures define the role of government and the role or roles of God's people in the government especially in a representative form of government like we practice here in the United States what is the role of the church let's let's review this the church the Christian in God's in the government that God has set up here in the United States and ordained well, as a guy who spends an awful lot of time in the Old Testament, I always hate it when we separate old and new. Mm. But there are some significant differences. <laughs> in the Old Testament, God's program of a theocracy or God ruling through the nation of Israel uh, caused a different form of government where God could, uh, God did legislate all the laws that had to do with not just safety and civil laws, but also moral laws as well. Today, of course, in the, in the uh, our time period in the New Testament, we have civil laws and governments that do their proper thing, and we are to obey them. Um, So we handle, we we look to the the laws of the New Testament for the church, but we don't try to enforce those laws as though we are part of the government as we were in the Old Testament. That doesn't mean that we don't use our rights to vote for uh, things which are upholding godly values. So uh, I've always tried to vote in ways which would result in this decision. Uh, but at this point, then, um, I'm, I'm not trying to be part of the legal authority uh, that enforces it per se. But I do want to support, as as a member of the church, support people in their in their lives and listen and care and uh, encourage. Yeah, I think of Romans chapter 13. You know, as, as one of the the seminal passages on this that tells us every governmental institution has been instituted by God. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around when we think about, you know, Hitler and Nero and even our own government being established by God, especially because we're in a representative democracy where we want to think, well, no, we're the ones that instituted it. But I think we have to recognize that even within our constitutional republic, once those officials are elected, they are the ones who are governed. And so as Chris mentioned, you know, we have a responsibility to be involved in and actively lobbying for Christian values. But I think we as Christians have to be really careful to not allow our hope and our trust to shift from God, who's the one who ultimately is in charge, to these intermediary means that he might use to shift policy and imagine that somehow if we just pass better laws or elect better officials, that somehow we'll become a Christian nation. No, we become a Christian nation by proclaiming the gospel and seeing that gospel transform people's hearts. Mm. But then I think where it becomes especially challenging is there are many times 
where our government makes decisions that we don't agree with. Now, in this particular situation, we're celebrating a decision that the Supreme Court has made that we do agree with, that we resonate with as being backed by biblical principles. But what about when we look at COVID, for instance? You know, many people said, I disagree with how our government's handling these things. Well, let's look at Roe v. Wade. Right, exactly. You know, that how we engage in some of those things when we disagree, when, when we aren't on the winning side, if you will, speaks volumes about where our trust really is and whether we actually submit to our government as an authority or whether we only submit to them when we agree with them. And I think there's a a huge Christian witness at play here that when the vote doesn't go our way and when the Supreme Court doesn't decide in the way that we hope, is there this kind of frenetic fear and anger that we're seeing among many abortion supporters during this time or, or is there a steady trust and a continued confidence that God is working his plan, even if we don't see exactly how that works? Mm-hmm. So let, let's go down that thread just a little further. <clears throat> this decision very likely could, and I'd say it probably already has, increase the political and the social polarization that already exists between liberals and conservatives, both in our society at large, and I think we're probably going to see it in our churches. Mm-hmm. There will be some who just can't stomach the idea of hearing or seeing even more of a celebration about this mm-hmm. uh, decision. So speak to both camps with, with biblical instruction on how to navigate these differences, these discussions, these uh, could be arguments. Or in other words, how do we disagree well scripturally? Mm-hmm. Well, at the risk of being repetitive, I would go back to, to listen well. It's so easy to be polarized by stereotyping or... Uh, character have a caricature of what someone else's position is many of the people that i know that are believers who are at least sympathetic to uh, pro-choice positions are those that have seen the way that many times christians champion pro-life in the womb but then once that baby is born they stand against social programs and support for unwed mothers and and uh, criticize those that maybe are on welfare, you know, those types of things. And so if we listen well to that, it actually helps us to find our common ground rather than to say, well, no, I'm staking a position out over here. And in the same way, if you're somebody that maybe says, I really struggle with the, the triumphalism maybe I'm seeing among believers, I think even understanding a little bit of, of the fight that has gone on for the last 50 years and the, the burden that many people have for for life of the unborn uh, helps to to just understand where one another are coming from and, and look for ways that our personal stories connect. You know, I've shared before even in messages that when Katie and I were uh, pregnant with our fifth son, Judah, or a fifth child, Judah, and we went in for an ultrasound and, and discovered that he had Down syndrome, one of the things that we dealt with almost every appointment from that point on was the the offer for alternatives that you know this child might very well have medical needs might have developmental disabilities that there were alternatives that we could pursue and just engaging in that from the position of someone that says wow this is real life this isn't just something i'm hearing about in the news it gave me an appreciation for the pressure or the fears that might lead some people to even consider something that previously they might have thought unthinkable Mm-hmm. No, that's good. We've, we've talked about trying not to be inflammatory, and Tim has talked about listening. 
And you used you talked about the triumphalism uh, that some might find offensive. I don't even want to use the word victory. I mean, in one sense, it is that I, I am uh, excited about the lives that will be saved because of this. But again, let's keep in mind, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. I don't want it to be us versus them. This is a satanic battle against death, and that's who we're fighting against. But but what we want to do is to reach out to the folks in the, on a different side so that what this issue does is it puts the, the issue on the front burner. And so now it is up to believers to step up. So that when unbelievers see this and get angry about it, <clears throat> the question is, what will the church do? How will the church respond? And as Tim said, again, to, to listen, to be there, and to support in a thousand ways uh, with care, with tangible ways, and then also with teaching about the goodness of God's plan, that children are not a burden but a blessing, and that uh, uh, marriage is good, <laughs> and all of those things that we stand for about pro-life in every way. And to the conflicted individual, the individual who says, I know that abortion is wrong. And there are those amongst us, close to us, I know it's wrong, but I also feel, and especially, it probably, I'm thinking, maybe mm -hmm. tends to be more younger people mm -hmm. who have not known, never known anything other than mm -hmm. Roe v. Wade ruling and the results of that. But they're saying, I know it's wrong, but I just, I feel bad. And, I, and I'm, I'm confused. I'm conflicted. How do, how do you encourage that person? Uh, I think you're putting your finger on a very important issue, Bart, because, as I said, this, this goes back to the idea of the, the cultural tides eroding biblical truth about marriage and sex and children and family. So that, again, 50 years ago, th those things weren't there, but now they are where the, the right to be who I want to be and the right to express my own identity and the right to, ex to have ultimate freedom about my choices, all of that cultural thinking has crept its way in to church and to especially um, people to whom this is normal, seems normal, and I'm talking about our young, younger crowds often. So that that's where we have to double down on good teaching about, the again, the goodness of children and the, the responsibility of parents and, the, and, and the, the goodness of a commitment, a permanent commitment of a man to a woman in order to raise a child. Mm -hmm. Well, and again, I think we want to affirm that their heart is being moved by compassion. Mm -hmm. Just as much as the person who is standing against abortion their heart is being moved by compassion for that unborn child. We also must not lose sight of our compassion for the women, and in many cases men, who are, are dealing with difficult situations and for whom the offer of abortion feels like a way of escape from a hopeless situation. Mm -hmm. I think going back to a question you asked earlier, as we see people angry and, and scared, so much of it comes back to the fact that the supports that Chris just described aren't there. Many people don't have a nuclear family. We're living in economic times that the idea of trying to, to raise a family on one income without substantial support is, is seemingly impossible. And, and so as we 
think about that person whose heart goes out to that unwed mother who's dealing with a, uh, an unplanned pregnancy or even a, a wed mother maybe that's dealing with an unplanned pregnancy. I think if we can enter into their pain, their shame, their fear, but say there's another way. And it's not necessarily an easy way. And I think that's one of the things that our heart goes out to them is, man, in a single decision, a single choice, there's a ripple effect of consequences that we feel for them in that. And yet we also trust that so many times God does his greatest work when people are in trouble, under tension, in transition. And so rather than just looking at the temporary relief of the trouble, look at the the eternal transformation that can take place through it, then I think we're poised to use it as a gospel opportunity rather than a moment of a culture war. Mm. That's, that's an excellent way to think about it. Just a small little sliver, and this, I hope this is a good example. Uh, right now, my son-in-law is away in Europe on a business trip. That leaves my daughter <clears throat> with a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-month-old. And you just tell her to suck it up. And uh, yeah. Um, your heart goes out. Right. to that situation, and yet she has a nuclear family of a mother and a mother-in-law who can come and help out. But if she didn't have that, that would be a virtually impossible situation. What, what do you do? How do you get sleep? How do you provide? How do you do all the normal things that a household requires? And so that's the absolute reality that, that some and many are up against. So that that's where compassion, uh, someone to step in, to show what the family of God can look like, uh, can be, as Tim said, a huge gospel witness. And this is a common theme from abortion proponents, right? That, well, hey, you're against it, but what are you doing to help those who don't aren't getting abortions or make maybe can't or didn't or whatever the case may be? What are you doing? Is that a fair statement? Is that a fair charge? And, and, and let me just... Uh, ruminate on that just for a moment let me also say that you know common sense will dictate i think that especially in states that have adopted or will adopt laws to make abortion illegal there could be many resultant opportunities for ministry first what kinds of opportunities do you see on the horizon second how should the local church and its members prepare for these opportunities maybe not necessarily to deflect but to respond to some of these criticisms I think it's absolutely a fair question because there are times in which we are inconsistent in our positions. You know, that we would stand for the lives of the unborn, but for the lives of immigrants, let's say, we're far less concerned. I was just reading this morning, there were 48 people found dead in the back of a semi-trailer because they were trying to, to come into our country. And rather than grieve those lives, many times we're like, well, that's what they get for not going through the right processes. And so to, to go back to the question of, of these women dealing with unplanned pregnancies, I think we want to look for any ways that we can to encourage them. You know, our, our crisis pregnancy centers, Katie and I have been involved in supporting crisis pregnancy centers for the last five or eight years. Uh, and the stories that we hear of, of the women specifically that can be on the front lines to minister to those women in the moment of fear and uncertainty to, to show them an ultrasound of their baby, to get a picture of that this is a life that is within me, just not a, a blob of tissue. I think those are, are vital ways to be 
right on the front line. And then, yeah, you think about fostering and adoption. We as churches, whether we are individually as specific families involved in that or whether we are as a community supporting the families that are walking those roads, that's all a part of being pro-life. And we have to recognize those aren't easy paths either. You know, we have a family in our church that's uh, dealing with a fostering situation that's incredibly difficult, that they are, are just agonizing over it, and yet out of love for God and love for this child, they are walking that road. And so I think we have to recognize there are sacrifices that we will have to make if we are to love others well. <clears throat> Tim's right. That is a fair question. There are a couple sides to it, though. Um, and and my mind goes back to Jesus condemning the Pharisees. And he said, you've done a really good job tithing your mint and your cumin, but I really wish you'd get a sense of what it means that God loves mercy. Mm. And in this idea, I think this is a situation where loving mercy and being merciful towards people when they're suffering, sometimes the consequences of their own choices is still a very good thing. It is still a gospel witness opportunity. But I think it's also important for us <clears throat> not, not, not to teach them, but to teach our own and to say to our own children, you see, the, uh, easy uh, recreational sex with someone you're not married to has consequences. And to take away the consequences of that, uh, I think it degrades the importance and the value and the protections that should be upon sexual intimacy in the first place. So in some sense, um, yeah, we want to be merciful to everyone. Is it the church's responsibility? Well, it's our responsibility to help out, but it's also time to teach about responsibility and consequences. And you know, again, it doesn't, it's not this case in every situation, um, but often it is one of those foundations that's important to talk about. Our guest speaker just this past weekend here at church presented a sermon on Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. And one of the comments he made that has stuck with me is, we need to develop a more robust theology of suffering. It speaks to me in light of this particular decision from the Supreme Court and this train of thought about people who are suffering and there are going to be opportunities for ministry. Perhaps we need to enter into their suffering with them mm -hmm. by taking some of that on ourselves and showing our love in that way. Have you done that for your children? Yes. Have I done that for my children, my wife? And... So perhaps we need to be ready to enter into their suffering. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. I think we have to know how to process it ourselves. You know, we have to have good theology of suffering. And then, as Chris mentioned, recognizing that sin does have consequences, but that doesn't mean we don't show compassion. You know, I think a good kind of litmus test for us as a church would be to say, if there was a girl dealing with an unplanned pregnancy in our church, would this be a safe place where she could share her sin with a repentant heart and feel that she was going to be loved and supported and cared for or was she going to be shamed and marginalized and and viewed as as a worse sinner than any one of us and i think those types of very practical questions help us really begin to drive to the question of what type of culture have we created and are we actually a place that would feel like a safe space for someone to be repentant of sin and to deal with that in, in a gospel context? 
Well, anyone who has listened to or read news items on this matter knows that the Dobbs ruling did not make abortions illegal. It simply pushed the issue to the states. And, of course, that means that in certain of our 50 states, as we've said before, abortions are and will be legal. So talk to the person who says, I want to respond to this. Well, what should those who have a pro-life conviction from God's word do in light of that fact? Mm. I mean, at the risk of sounding simplistic, I'd start with pray. You know, as much as we celebrate the fact that Supreme Court and any number of things have come together to make this decision happen over the last week, ultimately we trust that it's a spiritual battle, as Chris was mentioning earlier. And our prayer is not for change of laws, but change of hearts. Mm -hmm. Because you can change all the laws you want to, but if the hearts are not changed, the the sin will just mutate in in different ways and, and result in even greater brokenness in certain cases. And so pray that God would give us a heart com- for, of compassion. Pray that he would work in the hearts of, of individuals, of legislators, of governments. And I think also support, you know, being involved in our, our local pregnancy resource centers, considering ways that we can uh, support even financially. Because more than ever, we're going to have people that are are scared, that are looking for answers. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Ohio has already enacted legislation that now makes abortion um, in virtually every situation, not in every situation, because there are certain exceptions. Um, But recognizing that that's going to create opportunities for us right here in our community. I think Tim's exactly right. Uh, We should make sure that our crisis pregnancy centers don't have any needs at all that are unmet and to uh, support them every way we can. It's also true that even going back to that experience in 1972, the girls who could afford to go to New York were ones that had family support and money. This uh, uh, affects people of lower income and without nuclear support in a much more drastic way. I think it's also true that it is difficult to reach out in those situations, and probably people are not going to come directly to a church. Probably they'll go to a crisis pregnancy center. So I think we need to especially look for uh, folks who have lower incomes to help out in this time. But isn't that what James said? God has chosen those who are not rich to be rich in faith, those who are poor to be rich in faith. And and, and what, what great opportunities for the gospel. And the phrase pure and undefiled religion comes to mind, mm-hmm. does it not? Mm-hmm. Does it, James, who speaks to that matter, mm-hmm. what is that? And that is taking care, without going into the specifics he mentioned, but the idea is taking care of those who are most needy and most uh, open to the effects of bad decisions and the effects of life. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons I love, you know, as we talk about crisis pregnancy centers, you know, our, our family, church family here at Grace just did a diaper drive for the local crisis pregnancy <coughs> center because once that baby's born, there are many needs that are there and, and certain things that we might take for granted of, well, of course, this is just what you do for a baby. For many people, those are daily struggles, the ways that we can support them that just tangibly express the love of Christ, and we want to look for those opportunities. Bart, you used the phrase a couple paragraphs ago about entering into their trouble, and what a a great gospel phrase that is. This this is exactly what Jesus does. He enters into our situations to help out, and and I think that the more that we do that, the more we're able to uh, show gospel love. And if I can add, if I may, 
entering into, and especially those who have entered into the adoption process or adoption life, mm -hmm. fostering, recognizing that there are unique struggles that those individuals enter into when they do that and mm -hmm. experience, but also just in general, entering, being willing to enter into each other's lives, mm -hmm. asking how they're doing, mm -hmm. going to the ball game when maybe mom and dad can't go, mm -hmm. uh, uh, coming up to a young man or a young woman, uh, a child even, who, and just patting them on the back, remembering their name is so important mm -hmm. to loving them and telling them, you know, we talk about the worth of life. Do we really demonstrate that when we walk in? Do we remember that young person's name? Mm -hmm. Do we do we enter into their life and try to encourage them in Christ? Uh, so many things we can do, I know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Children are a blessing from the Lord, but, but anyone who's raised them knows it's a sacrifice too, right? Mm -hmm. All the way through. So, this, so the sense that, oh, this child is a burden, well, there, there is truth. It's a sacrifice. Um, and so entering in and sacrificing with folks um, is a good thing. I know three gentlemen who sometimes are burdens to their wives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but we digress. Let's move on. <laughs> Tim, Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Mm -hmm. Appreciate your comments. Appreciate your wisdom in this matter. Tim Cockrell and Chris Miller have been my guests on this special episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. We've been discussing a biblical response to the recent United States Supreme Court decision in the matter of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. You can access all of Grace Baptist Church sermons on demand through YouTube, and you can access each podcast episode by using your favorite podcast app or by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking podcasts on the media tab. If you'd like to talk with someone further about a biblical response to this ruling or about any other matter, please email us at contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. And plan to join us next week. We'll be purposing to continue our discussion of God's Word in the last section of Exodus chapter 15. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.